Good morning, everyone. I want to start with a question, and that question is, what do we suppose as Christians the book of Revelation is supposed to do? Like, why? what's the principal reason why we should be reading it? <clears throat> How do we know it's working? Many treat Revelation as essentially a strange, complicated book that's worth the deep dive because it reveals details about the final series of events leading up to Jesus' return. In other words, we think the point of Revelation is to disclose the final chapter of history and show us the script to the story's final act. And while certain segments of Revelation uh, does speak to those interests, the more I study it, the less I'm convinced that that's the way that we should approach this book. It is an apocalypse. It's a revealing of Jesus Christ, which means it's meant at the most essential level of our faith to break any small or insufficient idea that we may hold regarding who Jesus is. Here are two powerful quotes from Timothy Keller. This book is meant to show you a glorious and exalted picture of Jesus Christ, a Jesus who cannot be managed, a Jesus who cannot be trivialized away. When you meet him in chapter one, his hair is white to show that he is wise. His eyes are fiery to show you there is nothing that he cannot see. Out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, which is to show that his words penetrate and nothing can stop them. His voice is greater than the sound of waters to show his power. And that's the thing we all need in order to rise to any occasion, to rise to greatness, Keller writes. The book of Revelation is here to make us a person who needs to be great. Sorry, the book of Revelation is here to make a person who needs to become great, become great. And the only way for that to happen is if you see Jesus Christ, not as a pale Galilean, not as someone who's frail and fragile, but someone who is mighty, someone who is all powerful, someone who is riding the stallion of history and he's going to ride it. He's going to break it. He's going to tame it. He's in total charge of it. This is the picture of Jesus Christ we're given in the book of Revelation, and that's what we need. I thought that was a good way to move back into these messages in Revelation. Let's pray. God, show us your glory. And through your text, dispense any small or insufficient ideas that we hold about you, any small or insufficient conceptions any small or insufficient applications in response to you. Amen. Today we'll be looking at Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. It is the message to the angel of the church in Sardis. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, we read, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, they walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the, the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So about six centuries prior to um, Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, the establishment of the church, and the giving of this letter somewhere around 90 AD. Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world, but by the time the Roman period had come, it had declined really to the point that one historian Roman called it, sorry, one Roman historian called it a relic that lived more from its ancient prestige than on any suitability to the present conditions. So it was a city that was sort of a former, um, it was kind of a ghost of its former self, right? It was living off its former glory. It was the urban equivalent of that person who's always reflecting about the good old days. But even as its glory had faded over the centuries, Sardis in John's time was still, um, well, it still had a lot of things going for it. It had choice location, really good climate, strong economy, significant amount of wealth, and it was still considered a pretty significant cultural center. In verse 1, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words who him, of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So again, a lot of symbolism here in Revelation. This is why it's not um, helpful to press the idea that we should read Revelation literally very far because right out of the gate, we hear Jesus describing the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God. God doesn't have seven spirits, but this is the language that is being used to convey fullness or completeness that the spirit of God in the seven stars, which are these seven churches, is operating in its fullness. He continues, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, so right away there's a big difference that we note here in Sardis. In spite of their faults, all the churches so far that have been addressed by Christ have been recognized for something good. But here in this message, we find nothing. There's nothing that Jesus commends in Sardis. It's right to the warning and the criticism, right? That is a big oof. Christ knows their deeds, which means their lifestyle, the, the, their conduct, their expression. And although they have the reputation of being alive, they're actually dead. So the, this gives us an early clue of the kind of church that was had taken shape in Sardis. This church was Christian, but really Christian in name only. It had a reputation or a name. That's the, the Greek word there. It can mean reputation or a name. They, they looked the part. Cosmetically, they were a church. They did church-like things. But once you looked under the hood, as it were, you'd realize that there was no spiritual engine. Great paint job. Looks like a really solid vehicle. Once you get under the hood you realize, oh, this thing actually is dead. In verse 2, Jesus says, Wake up, strengthen what remains in you and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And the word wake up can be translated watchful as well. It kind of means like snap to attention. 
it's a tense indicating a continuing state. So it's not like um, you're asleep and then you wake up and now you're awake. It's more the sense of ongoing alertness to potential threats, full awareness. You know, you have those times in your life where you're just in the present moment and then you're just fully aware of what's happening around you. You're not sort of simply uh, allowing your habits and rhythms to take over and your mind's kind of wandering. You are fully alive and alert to the moment, right? Think of a city guard who, instead of being focused and alert and aware, has allowed themselves to kind of slump into a soft, negligent, unfocused, kind of drowsy stance, such a guard would look the part. They'd look like they were protecting the city, but um, they're really dead in terms of their ability to actually do their job and respond to threats. And they might find themselves literally dead if the city gets attacked. And that's how Jesus sees this church. They are spiritually soft and negligent and unfocused and drowsy. And he says, I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Right? Somewhere in the church's past, it stopped seeking to please and honor God. And it pivoted to focus on cultivating a socially acceptable reputation. Because the reputation within their cultural context is very good. They're very well thought of by the society around them. And maybe in response to some of that affirmation and acclaim, the church continued to take steps to fit in to the surrounding agendas around uh, yeah, surrounding agendas of culture instead of saying, no, we've got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And sometimes that's going to take us in a very different direction. But they moved in the direction of appeasing culture um, and may maybe they did so because they knew that at some level pursuing God in their context would be costly. And so like an insecure teenager, they spent all their energy trying to please those around them and, and gain social currency, gain a reputation so that they could say, I no, 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 we're not like those other churches. We're not like those like super Jesus-y, uh, Bible-thumping, wacko Christians who actually believe in and follow Jesus as disciples. We're not like one of those churches. Don't worry. Like we'll, we, we can totally fit in. There are lots of churches like this today. Um, although the expression of that kind of desire to accommodate the culture and to be thought well of by the culture around us is, it can be pretty varied. Some examples might be just kind of like the moralistic church. Right, kind of chicken soup for the soul. The, the the point of our church is just to kind of talk about the broad themes of love and care and forgiveness and grace, and we'll throw out some platitudes. But this is kind of the it's good to be good and nice to be nice church, right? It doesn't uh, cause much friction in any way. It's it's just kind of a heartwarming uh, place to feel and be affirmed in a desire to try and be essentially a good person. In another church, it might look like a desire to connect with the culture around it out of an intent to influence it, but you 
in, in working so hard to build a bridge to the culture around them, the church began to lose anything that made it distinctive. It really just looked like a cosmetically Christian version of any other kind of group that was around, right? This can be like a seeker sensitive church where you try so hard to appeal to non-Christians. You actually forget some of the central um, commands and demands of what you should be focusing on as the church in terms of worship and honoring God. Maybe it was a church that just morphed into being more like a social club rather than the ecclesia, the called out ones who were then sent back into the world to be salt and light. And they were kind of like, yeah, yeah, we don't really think of that here. This is sort of just like, yeah, community and connection. And that's, that's next. That's, that's where we've kind of landed. Now, regardless of how it was specifically manifesting itself in Sardis, Jesus calls it death. Right? He has nothing to commend about the church. And so we can at least safely assume, I think, that the church had progressively lived into comfort and ease and self-serving modes of expression. And it had come to a point where it was barely discernible as a church patterned after Jesus' teaching and mission. Other priorities were clearly front and center. And so Jesus says in Revelation 3.3, 3, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Right? Those words, remember, that's a Greek word that is a present imperative, which means um, bear in mind. So it doesn't just mean to recall something in a moment. It means to put something on the forefront of your mind. Put it front and center. What is what is Jesus referring to? Well, I think broadly what they had been taught in terms of the core teachings of the scripture, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, its implications for life, right? The content of the gospel, what Tony Evans calls the scope of the gospel, how that should play out in terms of at the individual level, within their marriages and families, at their life as a church, their life as a citizen of Rome, their identity, their mission. Um, remember, Jesus says, what it means to be a disciple. And that's not essentially about being a people pleaser. It's about pleasing God and honoring me. And he says, obey it, keep it, keep these truths, keep these teachings, live these things out. And turn from your current path. Right? <clears throat> the challenge to Sardis is that they need to snap out of a false sense of security. Right? They're drifting through life. They're allowing the culture to carry them. And Jesus says that he will come like a thief if they don't wake up. Now, in other New Testament pattern passages... The coming of Christ, or what's sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord, is said to be like a thief in the night. And this is a proverbial expression, which essentially means when something happens to you that was unexpected, that, uh, you would say, wow, that came upon me like a thief in the night. And what Jesus is saying here is not, uh, repent, otherwise I'm going to come to you in terms of my second coming. The second coming is not in view here, obviously, because Jesus would not be communicating, hey, if you don't repent, 
I'm actually going to come back. If you do, I won't, <clears throat> right? Jesus' second coming is not contingent on Sardis's or any other church's faithfulness. What he's saying is, I want to let you know that if you do not turn from your path, I will visit you through circumstances and facilitate a swift, severe, and unexpected judgment against you. And that's a, that's a warning that would have held special relevance to the church in Sardis because twice in the city's long history, it had been captured because it failed to watch out for approaching enemies who had then overtaken and plundered it. So this warning from Jesus had, a, had, a, had some teeth to it because they had a cultural history and a shared social history that they could draw upon to say, oh, wow, we, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to fall asleep at the wheel and then to have disaster strike unexpectedly. We don't want that. Jesus says in verse four, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Okay, finally get to some good news. It's not all of the church in Sardis. Not everyone in the church has soiled themselves by, you know, kind of playing in the dirt, so to speak, meaning full and unhindered participation in the pagan lifestyles around them, living as if living in a, in a way that rejects and ignore God, rejects and ignores God's commands and instructions and his very heart for them. These are Christians who stayed faithful to Jesus. They understand that, yes, they're called to go into the world around them, to be salt and light, to be a witness for Christ. But also they understood that they needed to guard against adopting kind of worldly, meaning sinful, um, lifestyles, ways of thinking, you know, whether that could be like materialism or exploitive business practices, disregard for the poor and lowly, hedonism, self-centeredness. So they, they understood we need to be a part of the world and be in the world in order to influence it, but we need to guard against adopting these ways of thinking and living that we see around us. And these are Christians, Jesus says, who will walk with him, which is a, a picture of fellowship and power of, of walking with Christ that, you know, you know, he's got our back. He's with us in the valley being dressed in white. And that's a symbol we probably recognize it's a symbol of purity, but it's also a symbol in a Roman context of victory. And these are Christians who have been found worthy because they rejected the temptation to live as if fitting in with the broader culture was more important to them than living for Jesus. Verse 5, the one who is victorious then will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let us hear this message. Um, and I think the question that I hear in my heart, that I hear um, for our church that I want to share with us, that I want to challenge us through, is this. Does our Christianity have an edge 
does our Christianity have an edge? Meaning, are there times where our Christianity shows itself to be strong and willing to honor God, even when the culture or society or friends or family or coworkers say, this is the way to go? Or is our faith like that of the church in Sardis, sort of this perfect model for inoffensive Christianity. Jesus wants his church here, but all over the world, to wake up, to put at the forefront of their mind his teachings. And that will mean our Christianity will gain an edge to it. It will not always play nice with the different narratives and uh, practices and ways of thinking that people are inviting us into. Jesus warned about this in Luke 6.26. He says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword there is a metaphor for this thing that divides truth from falsehood and brings clarity into situations that are maybe, or brings spiritual clarity into situations that are spiritually vague. If our faith is such that we never ruffle any feathers, then I think we're missing something. If our reputation among every non-Christian that we know is just um, just overflowing with positive things. There's, there's nothing negative that could be said about us because we, we've never gone out of our way to be offensive. We, we've always leaned into being nice and to censoring what we say and how we say it. I think this message to Sardis challenges me to think what lies at the bottom of that often is that we are seeking to make our faith as palatable as possible for other people. And in the process, we're actually not being honest with other people or with God and maybe even ourselves because the Christian faith has sharp edges and we seek to live out our faith knowing that some of the time simply by seeking to worship and prioritize Jesus and his agenda in our lives that's going to offend other people that's going to cause relational friction that is going to cause our reputation to take a hit not because we're trying to facilitate that reaction. We can be very gentle and humble and loving in our expression of our discipleship to Jesus. But because people are on a completely different spiritual page, there are going to be points of friction. You know, I try and model that from the pulpit. I don't strive as a preacher to be offensive or edgy 
But I also don't try to protect myself or us from the sharp edges of the word of God and the Christian faith. And the reason I don't do that is because I'm not trying essentially to please myself or to please you, to please someone else who's listening. I'm trying to correctly handle the word of truth. And what I want to do is preach and proclaim the truth regarding who Jesus is and what it means for you and I. And if I do that faithfully, if I do it honestly, if I do it courageously, at times that will be inevitably experienced as harsh or even offensive, right? Last two weeks have not been easy messages to preach, maybe less so to hear. But my role is to preach the word, all of it, and not kind of soften those hard edges. Who am I to think that Jesus's message to you as his church, I'll just stand as the middleman and kind of blunt things out. I'll, I'll just kind of dampen it. That I know better than Jesus how you need to hear this. Man, that's dangerous. And the only reason I would do that is because I want to please you, not because I want you to see a glorious, powerful, sobering, uplifting picture of Jesus. So at the church-wide level, the challenge is, does our Christianity have an edge? Hopefully, in some ways, this church is well thought of within the community. But in other ways, hopefully, if people really did some digging, they would realize, ooh, I don't know if I could go there. They're really into this Jesus thing. They have some beliefs about what it means to live a full and faithful life before God that I can't get on board with. Now, that's at the church-wide level. The other level of application might be even more important. And that is this. Do you allow the edge of Christianity to pierce yourself? There's this really interesting line when Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby and Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And then Simeon turns to Mary and he says, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. And you can just imagine that uh, Mary is excited to hear this. Like this is the anointed one. This is the coming one. God is going to do something um, in and through the life of her child that is unparalleled. But Simeon adds these, adds these words. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Right? The, the message that Mary needs to prepare for is that Jesus isn't just going to ruffle feathers and do heart surgery on people out there to the enemies of God. He's going to do it in here too, in her own heart. And I know Christians that are very excited to live boldly and faithfully out there, and they even like to ruffle feathers. They, there's a certain um, kind of the reward centers of their brain light up when they um, put themselves in situations 
where they're trying to cause relational friction, but they're doing so in the name of ministry and Jesus. And yet those people who on one level want to project such strength and such boldness, these are often Christians who avoid that same process happening in their own life. You ever met that kind of Christian? The one who's more than willing to dish out criticism, but is extremely defensive when you challenge them. Someone who has their theology locked down, right? But their lifestyle doesn't live up to their complex and thorough theological knowledge. And they'll dodge and weave when you try and challenge them on the need to bring those into alignment. See, it's really easy today to avoid the edge that comes from following Jesus as a disciple. As we see from the last few weeks' messages, sometimes Jesus has very sharp, painful things to speak into our lives. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active. And remember, the Word of God isn't just the Bible. Jesus is the Word made flesh. So we should also hold these two in mind, that God has given us a specific revelation in His Word, the Word of God, the Bible, but it is Jesus who is the Word. All things were created uh, by Him and through Him and, and for Him. So we should bear in mind Jesus and the Bible when we think about this verse. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In my experience, sometimes the heart surgery that God wants to do in me, it cuts like a knife. It's not comfortable. And that's why sometimes we learn or develop clever ways of avoiding that pain. But that's the pain that is so necessary for our healing and growth. And if we try to insulate ourselves from God's work in our lives through distraction or avoidance, withdrawal, you can fill in the blank for your own life, then it's going to catch up with us. And what will happen is we begin to fall asleep at the wheel and we'll begin coasting and we'll begin to worry more about what other people in the church think about us or other people in my family or other people in my friendship circles or my social circles or my business networks. And we'll slowly become numb to the things of God and increasingly held captive to the satanic agendas around us. And I don't mean satanic in the sense of people going around and worshiping the devil overtly. I'm talking about satanic as in you don't need God. What God has told you can't be trusted. You just live for yourself. You do you. And when we begin to live into that story, as opposed to the story Jesus invites us into, then we'll stagnate in our faith. We'll lose a sense of reality. We'll lose a sense of the reality of God's presence and power in our lives. And so Jesus' message to the church in Sardis is, is one that we need to hear because it is sharp and it is incisive. In history, as in life, 
To consider yourself secure and fail to remain alert is to court disaster. So the sharp edge that I want us to consider, not just in this moment, but maybe for the rest of today and this week, and we bring this into our prayer life is, are you courting disaster in your walk with Christ? You know, it doesn't matter how many people on the outside look at you and say, oh, what a strong, amazing Christian example. If you know that on the inside, you are dead. It's going to catch up with you. You're not going to be able to fake it to make it. You're like that car that looks beautiful on the outside, but at some point someone's going to lift up the hood and they're going to say, oh, this thing is dead. Remember, Jesus says, what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.